welcome to the Intuitive Insights podcast series. I'm Nina Lockwood, founder and director of Intuitive Interim and Executive Search. Throughout this series, I will be sharing engaging conversations with talented leaders from across the UK transport sector. For episode 18 of the Intuitive Insights podcast, I was joined by Chris Green, who many consider to be a true railway legend. And after spending an hour in his company to record today's podcast, I can definitely understand why. I know you're going to enjoy this one. Chris Green, welcome to the Intuitive Insights podcast. I'm absolutely delighted, beyond delighted, that you have agreed to join me. And um, I wanted to introduce you, not using my words, but using John Nelson's words from his book, Losing Track. You are a substantial railway man of huge reputation. So, and I think that absolutely is reflects everything I've been told in my eight and a half years that I've been working with the UK rail industry, is that your name is synonymous with leadership, it's synonymous with customer, um, and, and also with change and transformation that's happened in the industry. So I am looking forward, I can't wait to get started and to hand over to you to, to tell me in the first instance, Chris, what attracted you to the railway? Why did you come into this uh, industry to start? I, your I don't know, but wasn't I lucky? Because for some reason, I, I found the job I absolutely wanted to do, and I've never wanted to have any other jobs. So from a very young age, I was drawn to the railway. Um, I went to school at a young age by train, went on my own by train, probably at the age of six. So uh, I, I think I just got used uh, to railways being an environment I like. It's a product I like. It's a useful product. It's got social purpose. I love the staff, I love the customers. And, uh, and I think that's why it's made the, the, the leadership angle easy. Yeah, it's that, that passion for it. So mm. did you just say you were on a train on your own at the age of six? In those days we did. This was post-war when we, we just got on the underground and went to school on our own. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, now, you'll find that extraordinary. That. To me, that was absolutely normal. We, and yeah. we were all doing that. So it shows how times have changed. It really does, no, doesn't no it? No school run in those days. Absolutely not. Gosh, that blows my mind when I think about little people in my family. The idea of them getting on a train on their own. Gosh, your heart <laughs> be in your mouth now. Yeah. Um, and so when you, when you joined the railway, it was British Rail. So as a, as a trainee manager, I believe, in the West Midlands in the first place. So, so tell us what, what happened from there, Chris, and, and your experiences through the years. Well, it was a very low point in the rail industry's time. The, the Beeching Report had just come out in 1965, saying that we had far too much railway and we should be shutting a lot of it, uh, which was probably true to a large extent. But then the second report he wrote came out in 1966, I think, which said that um, there was a big future for intercity, for freight liners and for merry-go-round coal trains. So he, he was getting positive, And that's, I think, what drew me into the industry. And I was very lucky that the railway management trainee scheme was excellent. Uh, it, was, it was two years uh, and they moved all around the railway. They gave you lots of coaching. Uh, you were left to do things. You, uh, you were left to operate single boxes under supervision. Uh, everything except driver train. Right. And and uh, after those two years, I got to the Birmingham division at the very time we were electrifying the West Coast. So I was at the cutting edge of a modern railway, exactly what I wanted. Yeah. So it was a good start. 
Absolutely it was. And I think it's fair to say that whilst there are elements of British Rail that are, are lamented, much lamented, actually, I think that the, um, the management training programme does, from so many people I've spoken to over the years, does seem to be held up as best in class. Yes, and and I think it's, it's probably best in the country in many ways. Uh, it, it really was very good and uh, it, was, it was well managed. It was a nice mixture of theory and practice. You, you had classroom tuitions, you went abroad to see other railways and you moved around your, your own railway. Yeah. You know, I, I went to Birmingham, Stoke-on-Trent, Preston, Nottingham, Carlisle, uh, all in the space of that time and got a very good feel for the industry. Yeah, absolutely. And what, what an opportunity and what an industry to be part of as well, yes. giving you that kind of career progression. And we went on joint training courses with the union leaders. So we, we did consultation training, which was a consultation was a new idea at that time. There was negotiation before that, but then we added consultation. And we had a, a joint training school where we spent a week with the unions learning how to make it work. Oh, wow. Blimey. No, I, didn't, I hadn't heard of that before that, either. That, that was fun. I bet it was. Interesting times and what yeah. a good idea, actually. Yeah. And as we're kind of moving full circle now to 2021 and collaboration being the absolute word of the moment um, yes. and working much more closely again with the trade unions, then I wonder if that's something that's been tabled at any of these planning meetings with the various different groups that are... It, it uh, certainly should be, because you, you find out after the first beer that you're, you're both just as interested in the railways as the other one. Uh, and it's just a, a different take on the same problem. Yeah, absolutely. And so, so where where did you end up next after Birmingham, after the Midlands? And you've done your, your trainee manager, um, been around all of those different locations. What happened next? I, I think at Birmingham, it became pretty clear that my first love was the passenger side of the railway, uh, and that was as it happened the growth side. I was lucky; uh, the freight was in decline, and passenger was growing. And secondly, that I loved being out with the product and didn't, um, I'm not a head office person. Right. So um, I, I quickly became a uh, passenger manager at Nottingham. I became an area manager in Birmingham and then at, uh, then at Hull. I was four years at Hull as area manager. And th those were really creative jobs. I, I loved them both. So when you say creative, Chris, what do you mean? Uh, the, the Birmingham job was we've just electrified this railway, we've doubled the number of seats we got on the trains, how on earth are we going to fill them? And it was, it was left to me to sort it out. You, know, right. you, really, you really had that freedom and that was only my third job in the industry. Right. And, and, and we, we did manage it. We, we invented um, uh, mystery trains where you, you, you paid £10 and didn't know where you were going to go to, so <laughs> the destination was a mystery. And of course, really? some people ended up going straight back to their hometown, which is the one place they didn't want to go to. <laughs> but uh, you, you, you could fill trains with 500 people with no trouble in those days because uh, people were looking for something different. Okay, so like yeah. a magical mystery tour. Yes. So a day out on the train, but you don't know where you're going. Absolutely. But if you oh. lived at uh, Cromer or somewhere, it was bad news. <laughs> oh, my goodness. I think we ought to bring these back. I think this sounds like a great idea for the Great British Railways team to be looking at. I love that idea. Fantastic. It happened. And, uh, and the staff loved it because you were know, the evident of the spirit of it. You, you couldn't tell the passengers what the destination was, but the staff knew. So they, they were teasing the passengers on, on, on the journey. So oh, goodness, tremendous comradeship. In, in, in that 
And then uh, Hull, uh, where I was area manager, very interesting job because the freight side was running down through no fault of the railway. The, the, the docks were almost shutting, mm. but the passenger side had been neglected. So there was a double challenge there. How do you um, keep morale up on the freight side and how do you get people creative and passenger friendly on the passenger side? Yeah. And we, we, we managed it, but it was very much with the union's help. So, so those early days in joint training with the unions did work and we had to find things where, which were in common. So uh, there was a very good redundancy arrangement. The staff were at a very high age group. So a, a large number chose to take redundancy at that time, okay. which helped. And then uh, well, I was putting my energy, of course, into running mystery trains and getting more passenger services into Hull and, of course, more staff. So there was a, a trade-off to the unions. Yes, yeah, and absolutely. Probably. And exciting times, I would imagine. I, I look back on them as happy days. I bet you do. You can tell and, that as you're describing and, it to me, yeah. And again, tremendous freedom. There was a very delegated role where you weren't told what to do. You had to work out what to do. Mm. So very, very different to, to maybe... Now, now it's much more process-driven. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, so, so after Hull, where next? Uh, a, a jump to London, where I suddenly found myself running the uh, I was operations manager at Waterloo. So I was running the services out of Waterloo all the way down to Southampton and Portsmouth. Right. And if you've uh, been responsible for Waterloo's fear for any other railway job after that, I can assure you. Yeah. <laughs> you used to stand at the end of the platform in the rush hour, there were trains pouring in and out every few seconds. So it's always been a busy station then? Yes, it has. And uh, the, the spill, of course, was when things went wrong. If anything stops at Waterloo, you're in trouble within minutes. And mm. So that was a very pragmatic skill. Yes. And again, you had to respect your staff. The, the trick was to recognise the signallers were the experts on what to do when things went wrong, trust them and support them. Mm. And when you, when you look at that particular point in your career, was there, is there anything that stands out as kind of, well, that's what I learnt there? Do you know, kind of as we look back and reflect on different roles that we've done and different places we've been, um, different things can sometimes stand out. Was there anything at Waterloo that, that you remember as being the big learning? In all of them, I think. And it, it's such a simple thing, really. It's, it's listen to the staff. They do actually know a lot more than you do about the problem. So I, I very quickly learned if you shared a problem with the staff, you usually got the right answer. And uh, then the problem then was to find the money and get agreement to make it happen. But, but most of my ideas have come from the mess room or talking on stations or talking to passengers on trains. Yeah. You, yeah. you, you don't have to impose views on people. No, but so it, it's interesting, isn't it? Because there are there are leaders in, in, in every different industry sector who believe that they ought to have all of the answers because yes. they're in that leadership position. And yes. certainly from my perspective, I think the leaders who are the, the most effective leaders are the ones who do exactly what you've just said and listen to people. Yeah, and it really works. And by sharing those problems in Hull, for example, with the staff, you, you found that they had contacts with local councillors and communities and so on, and they, you were suddenly being put in touch with the whole network. Mm. And you were networking with your staff, with the community. Yeah. Um, yeah. and that, that's where the energy comes from. The community then started putting flowers on stations and uh, writing complimentary letters in the press saying how much better the area was. And it's a bit of third party ambassadorship is always yeah. good. 
always good and yeah. I think the you know to, to to this day community rail partnerships do an amazing job there's yeah. you know that yes they do the the flowers on stations and they make it look nice and it's never been better uh, yeah, but we'll come to that later on great stuff happening I won't steal yeah. your thunder on that but I've been <laughs> bowled over by by some of the stuff that the community rail partnerships are doing it's just incredible um, so after Waterloo, what comes next? What could what could top Waterloo? Yes. Uh, so I, I ended up in Scotland, big leap to my wife's surprise and horror. <laughs> <laughs> it was a four hundred mile move, and we'd only just settled in London. Oh goodness, right. So um, uh, and it was probably the happiest time of my life. The Scots made us tremendously welcome. I got three superb jobs, one after the other. There, so you were bringing the experience from the first job to the second, and from the second to the third. First one was operations manager for Scotland. Second one was deputy general manager. And the third one was general manager where we became ScotRail, which was the, the, the big moment. Yeah. So Scotland was a very remote part of the British Rail Empire in those days uh, and was rather run down. It wasn't getting the investment. The investment was tended to go to the East Coast uh, and the West Coast. Uh, and I'd had the fortunate experience of working in the British Railway Board for the year before I went. So I had lots of contacts at, at the centre. And I, I fed back how appalled I was at the lack of investment in stations, in trains, in staff, mess rooms, uh, in passenger information systems, uh, in training, uniforms. And uh, I got a lot of support for this. So gradually our budget got bigger. Uh, we overspent and people turned a blind eye. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> so, we, we got a lot more done there. Yeah. And we established the principle that um, if we save money, we could keep it and reinvest it in Scotland. And that was enormously motivating. Uh, so I would always pass that on. Never take the money back from someone who's saving money. Let them spend it on something worthwhile. So the money we saved on uh, freight rationalization. We reinvested in stations and all the things you now see today. We painted up every station in Scotland in three years, 300 of them, from uh, Inverness down to Lockerbie. Right. Um, we um, in introduced um, a new signalling system on the Highland Line, which made uh, the line's future safe. Before that, we were worried about its future. Once we put all the economies in, it was safe. Uh, and we invented the name ScotRail. And the name ScotRail was thought up in half an hour, and it was the best thing we did. The staff loved it, the public loved it, the politicians loved it. It was every politician's idea. They thought of it. <laughs> we didn't argue with them. Absolutely, yeah. And it, became, it became the people's railway. And so no, no one would dare, even today, touch ScotRail. You wouldn't shut a service in Scotland. You, you, you wouldn't reduce the service. There's a national pride in the railway there. We've never quite achieved in the rest of the railway system. Mm. It's interesting, isn't it? You say that that was kind of chosen in in half an hour, you know, and and you, and people were bought into that and felt like they owned it. Um, you know, there's there's such a lot of of criticism levied at um at the the new name that we've got and and how what whether an agency was used and how much a a marketing yeah. agency was paid to do that. And you kind of yeah. think, well, yes, I think actually sit some sit some railway leaders round a table and perhaps perhaps provide a couple of bottles of wine or a few beers. And half an hour later, you probably would have come up with the same name. <laughs> it's, not, it's not always easy. So some names are easy. London Transport's a natural for London, yes. and ScotRail's a natural for Scotland. So we, we had a natural one. Yeah. Uh, when I came down to London, Network Southeast was a struggle. 
So uh, London Rail doesn't work because it all goes all the way down to Whitstable and Southampton and places. But uh, uh, we, we ended up with Network Southeast as a compromise, and it, it works. Uh, it became NSE, and uh, I think what I learned from that is the name doesn't matter too much actually. Once people have got used to it and they're proud of it, you'll find with Great Britain's railways it will be just as good. Absolutely, I agree. And so your time in Scotland was um, was an enjoyable one then, a happy one? It, it, was, it was the ultimate delegation. 400 miles from headquarters, no, no one double-guessing you, um, enthusiastic staff who wanted to improve their railway, enthusiastic yeah. politicians. I've, I've never had so many local councils offering us money to invest. And we, we reopened stations, I think we reopened 10 stations, uh, all with council money and all with local communities putting flowers onto them and coming to help us clean them. And in the Highlands, of course, uh, you, you just can't stop every small station in the Highlands. So you depend on the community adopting it rather like a local post office. Right. Uh, so all that worked well. And then the, the final one was when a, a two, two local councils got together and helped us reopen the railway, the, the Bathgate line. Right. And that was immediately labelled rolling back beaching, because we were opening something each up. Yeah. And I think for that breakthrough, uh, government suddenly realised it was okay to reopen railways. And that, that, I think, was where the door opened on future railway reopenings. Right. So you showed them the way. Yes. But we, we didn't have to ask London. We, we, we were 90% independent. Right, and just and just got on with it, which is it makes such a difference, doesn't it? When yeah. you've got the autonomy to be able to lead a team to get on with it, who yeah. are on the ground and they understand what the local yeah. area needs and the local passengers but, need. But it, it's also worth saying the chairman, who was a Scot, Bob Reed, what I was doing. So full marks to him for allowing that freedom. He could easily have stopped us and then said, uh, uh, "You're over budget, or you're doing something that's not official." Uh, but he didn't. He, he quietly encouraged it. Yeah, very good. Quiet encouragement is always good, I find. Yes. And so after Scotland, back down south again. Well, that same chairman, Bob Reed, uh, phoned up and he was a man of few words. And he said, yeah, you're coming south. And the other few words were, I want you to do a Scott row. Oh. <laughs> uh, that, was, that was all I, I was, all I was ever told. Right. So, that was your job description. Yes. It turned out to be London and Southeast, as it was then called, right. uh, and uh, it, it was in an appalling state, no money. So the money was still all going on into city, and it wasn't going on the suburban railways. So the stations looked as though the war had just happened. Broken glass, uh, grey paint, grime everywhere, um, uh, miserable passengers and disillusioned staff. Mm, no wonder. Mm. So wasn't I lucky? It was everything I learned in Scotland, uh, you could cut and paste into London, absolutely everything. So start with finding a good name, which rallies everyone, which yeah. networks southeast. Um, smarten the whole product up. We, we painted every station. There were 900 stations in London to paint, and that was a massive operation. Um, get massive commitment to investment. The investment was big stuff in London. This was not something I could do. We had to have government support. Mm. And we were lucky there was a government minister, David Mitchell, father of today's Andrew Mitchell. All right, okay. Was a red enthusiast quietly and gave us huge private support. And uh, he bought a large silver cup as what he presented horse races. And it said he would present this every three months to the bit of London which had made the biggest improvements. And we had nine, no, we didn't, we had 16 railways in London. Right. So this cup moved around the 16. 
the media followed the minister, and, and suddenly it was really fashionable to have successful rowers. Right. And nobody wants to be at the bottom of the league table, do they? Of so everyone was trying to win that cup. Yeah. Very exciting period. Isn't that interesting how something so straightforward, and I obviously it wasn't just about the silver cup. And I, and I didn't think of that. That was the minister's own idea. Yeah, but it but it's made a difference. It's rallied yes. people, hasn't it? And it's given yes. people a focus, which is is yes. so important. And 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 yes, it's the silver cup is there. That's a tangible um, yes. thing that you have sat in in your office. But it's it's everything that is is underneath that in terms of what it means, isn't it, about improving the railway? And he he got huge pleasure out of joining us and doing it, and we got huge pleasure out of him supporting our investment cases. Yes, it works both ways. Yeah, it was a, it was a good deal. Yeah. Uh, again, the chairman was fully aware of what was going on, but we were left to get on with it. Mm. So uh, I was running what a, a, a third of the railway. Then uh, with almost no uh, interference at all, right? Until uh, the money ran out. So uh, when the treasury ran out of money in 1989, uh, when everything went wrong with the pound, remember we were tracking the euro at the time, mm. uh, and in three weeks we lost all our money. The treasury just said there is no more money. Uh, everything's got to stop, and that's when we ran out of tricks. There was nothing else we could do. No. Luckily, I'd foreseen this couldn't go on forever, so we've been rushing our things through. Everyone accused us of doing things too fast, but the reason was I was terrified the money would run out. So yeah. we had got our trains renewed, we had got the stations upgraded. Uh, Cecil Parkinson was by then the Secretary of State for Transport, and uh, he supported a new build of trains for us just before the economic uh, crash. And he even went to see Maggie Thatcher in Chequers to get the thing signed. I thought was very brave of him. Right. Three weeks after it was signed, the economic crash came, and we would not have got those trains had he not helped. Oh. Because once you, once you got the contract signed, you're safe. If the contract hadn't been signed, the Treasury could have stopped it. Right. So, so Cecil might well have. Sorry, you Cecil might well have had the same inkling that you had then. I, I think he did. A so sense he, of urgency, we need to get this, we need to get the signature on the dotted line. So he was on side too. But that's, a, that's an example where you do need friends up above you as well as down below you. So you needed the staff on side to make the new trains uh, attractive to the customer, but you needed the senior politicians and your own board to get the thing done. And it was £600 million. Pounds. Yeah, we were signing off on a Saturday. A lot of money, yeah, a lot of money. A lot of money now, but certainly yeah. a lot of money then. And those new trains kept coming and coming, and of course we called them networkers because they run on network southeast. Yeah, yeah. So a so a challenging time, but another another really strong demonstration there of what we what we now refer to as stakeholder engagement and management. That's yeah. kind of you know so certainly over the last few years what I've noticed is that um, when I first joined the railway eight and a half years ago, then when I took um, a brief, an assignment from a client for a new role, um, a lot of it, a lot of that discussion would be around the technical competence required to do the role. Yes. And there was a noticeable shift, I would say three or four years ago, when it, beca it became more and more important to have what we would refer to as interpersonal skills. So we are, yes, we're now, we want step people who have got strong interpersonal ability to be able to engage and manage stakeholder relationships. Yes. 
And that's what, you know, you're giving us some great examples of there. But, but strangely enough, it was easier to do in the nationalised British railways than it is today in the private days. Well, we'll come to that when we get to the private railway, but yeah. it, it was so easy in those days. We just naturally all did it. Yeah. I think one reason was we'd all grown up together. We were in the same village, if you like, the railway village. We trusted each other. We had <laughs> professional experts who really, really knew the railway backwards. And you could say to them, just do it. Now, yeah. Nowadays, you can't. You've got contracts and uh, safety cases and business studies. Mm. Yeah, a lot more process, as mm. you were saying yeah. before. Yeah. So what comes next? After the after the excitement of 1989 and the um, and the new trains just about getting over the line with that contract, yes. what happened next? So uh, it was the end of an era. We we'd finished massive amount of investment in electrification, in new trains, in new stations, uh, opening two lines, in fact. And then, of course, what does one do when there's no money? And the chairman said, "I think you'll be a lot happier in intercity." So I was I was moved before I got too frustrated. <laughs> to intercity and then almost weeks later i was standing by the radio in the press office and heard the announcement that the government was going to privatize the rail industry which would have been fine by me but they were going to do it in a very fragmented way they wanted to break it up into as many small pieces as they could which was the end of the world for intercity and network southeast of course right. previous nationalized industries like the airlines had just been nationalized and left to reorganize themselves the railway unusually the government decided how it was going to be reorganized. So that was a very disillusioning period. And my time with Intercity was really helping 300 people in the Intercity headquarters come to terms with having no role and finding new jobs. Yeah. And in a year, we every single one of them, bar two, managed to get a job or get retirement, whichever they wanted. So yeah. these, were, these were very high caliber people who went straight out into private industry. They were accepted overnight. Mm. And that reminded me just how good we were in those days, but we didn't realize it because we had no one to compare ourselves to. Of course, yeah. Uh, it was a very closed shop. Uh, so, yeah, so I, I went back to Scotland, but that didn't work. And then eventually, once we were privatized, uh, Richard Branson asked me if I'd come back and run, West, uh, run Virgin Trains for him, which yeah. is what we know as the West Coast and Cross Country. And I wasn't over-enthusiastic about it at the time because I was still in a bit of a salt that they'd <laughs> wrecked our industry. <laughs> and why, why should I uh, want, want to take a small bit of what was in the city? Yeah. Uh, luckily, he did persuade me in his inimitable way, and uh, I'm, I'm glad I did because he gave me a lot of freedom. And what I did say at the interview is I don't have to do this, and I only work best when you give me freedom. Mm. He was quite famous on the airline for interfering in the detail if he was on the aeroplane, he was telling you how to do it, etc. Yeah. And he, he kept his word. He, he never interfered on the railway. He asked if he could help. Yeah. yeah. We were getting a lot of bad publicity because it wasn't going well at that time on the West Coast. And when he phoned up, it was always, uh, sorry about that press article you got. Can I help you uh, put it right? But a very supportive person. Yeah. And that's not always his image. And, and that's really interesting because when you said um, Richard Branson asked me to uh, to help out on Virgin Trains, but I wasn't over-enthusiastic, my mind immediately went to, oh, I wonder how he, how he took that then. I can't imagine him being a person who would accept no for an answer. No, no he didn't. Uh, well, being Branson, of course, he said, I'm going off on a balloon trip across Africa. 
if I should return safely, please come and see me on the 7th of January. So I must admit, making me wait a fortnight, I was much more enthusiastic about that yes. interview. Yeah, uh, so a good ploy, yeah. Yep. And he had me down on his own to his house, and he, he said, I know exactly where you're coming from, because we, we, we'd had crosswords when I was in the city. Right. And he said, let's put all that behind us. Uh, there's one hell of a role we're to modernise here. We've got agreement to do everything you ever wanted, which is true. Upgrade right. in the West Coast, the uh, talk trains, which we would never have got in British Rail days. Yeah. Uh, and I said, but would I have the freedom to um, uh, manage and introduce these? Uh, and he said, yes. But then when you've done that, your project's over, you retire, and someone else comes in to run the finished product, which was spot on. So he, he was dead right there. I, I was the right person for the transition using my railway skills. I mm. probably wasn't the right person to be uh, a young, go ahead, Virgin Trains type. Right. And he got that right. And yeah. it's been a huge success since. But uh, I got the short straw because uh, those five years of uh, getting the West Coast to work were a nightmare. Mm, the worst that. experience I've ever had. Yeah. And it so was everything that was wrong. To, to what you experience, say, with ScotRail, when everything yeah. seemed to go well. Yes. You well, did the, 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 the comparison is the East Coast electrification was a one billion pound scheme uh, done, and the passengers barely noticed it had happened. It was done on time, on budget, and finished just before Intercity uh, ceased to exist. Uh, uh, the West Coast upgrade was chaos. Mm. The privatization, of course, they'd thrown away all the experience. So on the East Coast, you had experienced engineers in-house doing the jobs. Uh, West Coast would start again, uh, bring contractors in, let's have lots of contractors, let's have competitive procurement. Mm. You had Network Rail as a totally different organization to Virgin Trains, almost in competition with each other. Mm. And it ended up with rail track going into administration because it became bankrupt it had signed a contract we couldn't deliver and virgin trains being in a in administration for government really for, for three years mm. so we used that interim time and to let the railroad get the thing sorted out and so as much as there was lots of challenge there and and perhaps it wasn't all um plain sailing and and you know um i guess positive times um, at Virgin, just what stands out for you, Chris, as being the best bits? Well, the best of all the jobs. Of, the, the, of, of Virgin Trains specifically. Virgin Trains, yeah. I, I think it's the fact we stood our ground. Uh, we were getting massive criticism the whole time. We didn't know if we were going to keep our company or our jobs. And uh, we, we did what we did best. We went out there and stood with the staff. I, I spent most of my Friday evenings on Houston Concourse with passengers who had no trains. Mm. On, on Saturday, you can bet someone rang up and said the cable's been cut during the modernization and we're going to have no trains between London and Book and Keynes. No right. So we all trooped out to Euston Station and Book and Keynes, got the replacement bus services going, etc. And the staff did appreciate that, I think. Yeah. And that found the staff massively supportive. You know, yeah. you're asking people to change their shifts, to work overtime, to go to destinations they didn't normally go to. Uh, I can't remember anyone saying no. Yeah. So there was teamwork. We didn't get any credit for it in public, but we did keep the railway going somehow. Yeah, absolutely. And so at the end of that, was it was it kind of with a heavy heart that you retired or was it kind of like, well, thank goodness for that? I know no, you've been busy it, since, but... You know. <laughs> it's not the right time. And, yes. and uh, Branson, to his credit, they made it very clear at the beginning, you're, you're, you're here for the transition. 
yeah. when we need to, and we'll support you all the way in that. So uh, once we've got the uh, trains running at 125 miles an hour and tilting, and the new passenger services in the timetable, we invited uh, Tony Blair, who's a prime minister, and Richard Branson to come to Euston Station, uh, see the first train off with a big band of Coldstream guards. Right. And, and that was a eureka moment. I bet it was. And I bet that was a, a kind of hairs on the back of your neck standing yeah. up for and, that. And one. Tony Blair said to me, I almost didn't come because we'd been such bad news to the government, of course, yeah. the, the rail industry. But he said, I'm glad I did. Fantastic. So yeah. that, that, that was a nice break. And uh, my successes have made a super job of it. It's one of the best running railways in Europe. Yeah, yeah. It's um, it, it's just it's really great to hear this from your perspective because over my eight and a half years, I've spoken to so many people who have worked for you and with you on the railway, and everything you're saying about how you engage with people and. Um, and the support that you have from the staff that worked in your team is absolutely replicated by what they say of you as a leader. So it's lovely to hear your side of the story and, and hear that kind of echo your your kind of admiration for them and, and the part they played in yeah. keeping the railway running. And we, we enjoyed being together. Yeah. And, but yeah. what I should say in fairness is I was not the right person for the commercial contracts that came with privatisation and I had to have experts uh, who did that and, and my deputy was the expert in the commercial contracts right. and was the one who got a lot of money off government for Virgin for all the failures that happened since we signed the contract. Yeah. And, uh, so yeah, you're, you're, not, you're not one person, are you? My, my contribution is more on the doing side. His contribution was more on the commercial side. Which is is another sign of a great leader, is somebody who accepts that they can't do everything and they need to bring people yeah. in who are yeah. better than them. We'll at certain areas. <laughs> <laughs> I, I did not want his job. <laughs> I wouldn't want it either. Um, so I know, obviously, you, you have kept very busy since then, Chris, with, with various different roles and, and still many of them involved in the railway. Um, and, and I would imagine keep a very keen eye on what is going on and what the latest developments are. Um, I would love to hear your views on where we stand currently and um, and what would your wishes be? Where do you see the opportunities for the yeah. railway as we move forward? And and if you were in charge, what would and or that I could give you a magic wand and say, right, okay, what what are your three wishes? What would they be? I, I guess the starting point is uh, retirement wasn't easy. You don't just suddenly stop work. So uh, again, I was lucky because the the, the private role it does have more opportunities for non-executive directors, for advisors, for consultants. So I, I've been able to have a second career, if you like, uh, advising and observing, and I, I've increasingly enjoyed that. And for for a doing person, that was quite difficult. Yes, yeah, so you have to watch other people doing. You mustn't interfere, but you just gently say, perhaps if you tried it that way, it might work better. Yes. So <laughs> I've developed that skill, and I've had a lot of interesting jobs. Um, I went to Eurotunnel uh, as a, an advisor. I went to um, Network Rail, uh, Dover Harbour Board, Heathrow Express, and two most recent ones, which I really enjoyed, uh, getting Kemsley up and running. And uh, now what I'm currently doing, my very last job, is getting Crossrail up and running. And I'm only a very small cog in these now, but it's just fun uh, watching how they're doing it compared to how we would have done it in, in our time. Yeah, and, the, and the big difference we've already touched on is how bureaucratic everything is nowadays. Mm. To, to take two years before you can change a timetable, 
is absolutely ridiculous yeah. in the age of computers. And it's been very interesting with COVID, people suddenly found they can get the old British rail skills and change the timetable in 12 weeks. Mm. It can be done, yeah. but uh, you've got to throw away some process and trust your people. And uh, I, I think I'm seeing the industry beginning to go back to trusting people, and perhaps it's a more stable industry. Perhaps yeah. the industry is relying less on contractors and on its own staff. And obviously, you trust your own staff more. Yeah. Uh, I found Thameslink very good at this. There's a very good culture in Thameslink where everyone is working together. The managers do get up and uh, work with the staff and follow up what they're suggesting. And uh, I get great confidence from that that things are going to come right again. I completely agree with you on that. I think that um, Patrick Berber is doing a great job and he's got a very strong team of people around him. Yes. Um, but, you know, Steve, Steve White for one. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Um, I've got a huge amount of respect for Steve. He actually was one of my first podcast guests uh, yes. last December. Um, and he is another person that I could quite honestly just sit with for hours and listen to he, him. He's on my list. Yeah, he's, uh, he what's interesting with Steve, um, he, he is, he's got no ego. He, he doesn't go out to say, here am I, I'm important, I'm the chief operating officer. But he's aware of everything that's going on. So he just quietly gets around. I know, I'd, and I find it absolutely incredible how we can remember all this stuff. Great, <laughs> yes. you know, yeah. knowledge is amazing, and yeah. we do. We have some exceptionally talented people um, yes. in, in UK rail, exceptionally yeah. talented, and uh, and more and more so. What I'm seeing from my perspective is that these people um, are the people people. So yes, they have a love of the railway and sometimes yes. that includes the engineering side and the train side. But actually the people who are standing out as leaders for me now as we're, as we're moving forward are the people who get that this isn't about the trains, it's yes. about the people. Yes. That's that's what it is for me. And you, you're spot on. And there are now, I find, two types of railwomen. One, one is the uh, American business school process person who doesn't want to be up. And the other is the upfront manager who's not allowed to get on with it. And uh, I, I'm seeing things are improving. They're, they're recognizing they need both. And, and you do need both. Yeah. And yeah. I, I can think of several people I would admire who are making these things work now. And Steve White will be one of them. Yeah. So the, the, my other job, the Crossrail one, feels like West Coast upgrade without the passengers. Yeah. <laughs> You've got this massive frustration of millions of contractors and subcontractors all trying to get their act together. Everyone's trying really hard and it is going to come right, but it, it's incredibly difficult. It's, it's, it's a genuinely complicated uh, project, made twice as complicated by processes and contracts and bureaucracy. Mm and all the other things we have to do before we do anything yeah so you you will be riding on it next year but it's it's been a frustrating experience yeah i shall look forward to it i think that your point about trust as well is an interesting one because a few of my podcast guests who like you have were, were came through the the um british rail management scheme people like diane crowther mark hotwood who talk about having really senior roles at a relatively young age, you know, being kind yes. of in their early 20s and having yes. significantly yes. senior yes. roles. Yes. Um, absolutely. So there's that kind of trust that was there. But I suppose as the as the processes and the contracts and all the other bureaucracy that you've mentioned 
comes into play, then it removes people. It removes you from that kind of the, that yeah. level of trust, doesn't it? Because when looking back, what I can now see, when I was put into these jobs at the age of twenty-five, I had a, a huge support structure all around me. You, you had a stable railway. Everyone knew their jobs, and they could live with the idiot green appearing on the scene. <laughs> if you now go to a train company, Heathrow Express, for example, there were only, I think, 14 managers and uh, you and you had to pull your weight. There was no one to help you. You were the only operator yes. in that one. So there was, there was no one to hold you up if you got it wrong. Right. So, of course, you need more bureaucracy and more rules and more support. Absolutely. There's a balance, isn't there? So if you fragment the railway, yeah, you, you do, I think, fragment experience. Yeah. So uh, answering your question, I, I'm hugely enthusiastic for getting the railway back under one leadership. Uh, we, we need our Eisenhower who uh, pulls the railway together and leads us forward. Mm. And I, I think uh, great British railways, I'm still getting used to the name, is going to be fine for that. The important thing is not the name, it's getting power back from government and uniting the railway into one place. There's nowhere at the moment where you can go to sort out uh, a national timetable easily. You've got network railway, you haven't got the train companies, you're actually running them in one place. Mm. So Great British Railways brings us all together again in one place. And it's not nationalization, it's a sort of uh, private public partnership. Yeah. Um, and uh, if if what I'm hearing is right, that Peter Handy uh, and uh, Andrew Haynes are going to run it, you couldn't have two better people to do it. Mm. Uh, they've got the public service uh, spirit, they've got the railway experience, and they've got the ear of government. Mm. So uh, my absolute wish is to get that GBR organisation up and running. Second big wish is to get robust funding for the railway industry, and I've been saying this all my railway life. Yeah. Uh, what, what you really want is for the Treasury to say, here is a 10-year funding plan, and unless there's a national uh, emergency, that, that will be stable. Uh, you can then have a continuous electrification program, rolling electrification, where every year you do 50 miles of electrification, mm. all the other rollers in Europe do, do the same for signalling, uh, and uh, do the same for um, new trains, for example. Mm. Uh, so, but I think as a as a flip side to that, if the government's going to give us that sort of commitment on investment, they're also going to want a commitment on productivity, and the railways have got massively more expensive since British Rail, and British Rail gave very very good value for money. Yeah. So of course there wasn't any money, so we had to make a pound go a long yes. way. Yeah. Privatisation for some reason there's been far too much money around, and it's much easy, much too easy to throw money at schemes or indeed salaries, I'm afraid. So we are going to have to think what we can afford if we want to have a railway which the government supports with a lot of investment. Mm. We've been incredibly lucky to get HS2 investment in the middle of the COVID crisis. Yeah. But that's not going to go on if we're going to be a very expensive industry. Yeah. And my third one is to make you all love us. We, we want the public to be proud of us. Yeah. And, and, uh, it's doing a Scott Rail on a national scale. So we, we want people to go aboard and say, oh, we've got a great railway. Yeah. And some countries do it. When you meet someone from Switzerland, they normally tell you they've got a great railway. Mm. I, I would like the Brits to do that. Yeah. Uh, and th this means it's got to be uh, really clean and efficient, and it's got to feel good, which is mm. perfectly possible. We've got to have friendly staff. We mustn't go on strike every time there's a dispute. We've got to learn to settle disputes without strikes. Um, and we've got to invest. Yeah. Uh, all that's doable, but it takes time. I agree. Plot Rail took five years. Network Southeast took 10 years. Mm. Uh, the GBR could take 20, but it's worth doing. 
It's that's it. It's not overnight, but I absolutely am a firm believer that the romance of the railway is still very much there. Yeah. It's yeah. just buried under a few layers of stuff. Yeah. So I think when we when we start kind of reopening and welcoming people back to the railway, you would never, obviously, we would never have wished this this situation to have happened that we've all been through in the last 15, 16 months. But I think what it's done is shown us what the art of the possible is. You made the point earlier, Chris, about how we we showed we can do things quickly. Yeah. We can yeah. be fleet of foot when we need to be, yeah. uh, when we trust people to get on with it. Yeah. I think it's also demonstrated really strongly that we're capable of, of fantastic collaboration with every single part of the yeah. industry it's, all joined together. COVID brought us together. Absolutely, it has. I'm just hoping that we can keep hold of that as we move yeah. forward into the I, future. I don't think anyone will want to go backwards. Now we've rediscovered doing things fast and efficiently, we shall. And a nice example, uh, Network Rail, when COVID started, I think in March, at the original March gate, uh, they procured all the protective clothing they needed in 16 days. Masks, gloves, yeah. gowns and everything. It, it just quietly did it. And the National Health Service knew what Netrail was doing. We weren't taking stuff away from the health service. Yeah. But we found a system which could produce it very fast. Yeah. L lovely so, example. Let, let's do it on our own railway now. <laughs> really good example. Yeah. And, and you know, we're, we're, you and I are both judges for the National Rail Awards. And, and I did the uh, judging last week for the Outstanding Personal Contribution category. Um, as usual, I was in tears. Um, that happens every single year. But some of the responses that individual people have, have made to the pandemic and the things they've done that have made a huge difference, um, and not just pandemic related, of course, but, you know, there, there were a significantly higher number of entries this year than we've had previously, because people really have gone above and beyond uh, in terms of their day job to how they could respond to, to the pandemic. And and you, you referred to this earlier when you talked about why you came into the rail industry. It's that kind of social purpose yeah. that's been demonstrated so clearly, hasn't it? Really it has. And we are, we are a community. Yeah. And, and a, a very pleasant community. I, I've, I've never had a bad word. Yeah, in, no, I completely agree. And it's not how the public see us. No, it it's isn't. how it feels inside. We're the best kept secret, Chris, from that perspective. I keep saying this to people, you know. Um, I will say to, to Nigel Harris frequently, it's my soapbox topic. It's like, well, we all talk about how good we are to each other. But we need to do it beyond. We need to come yeah. beyond the railway family and talk about what an amazing industry this is. And I wouldn't want to work anywhere else. In, in, I agree. In my case, I'm doing the station judging for the National Rail Awards, and that gets me around the country, of course, uh, literally from Inverness to Penzance. Absolutely. I, I'm amazed how high the quality now is of both the stations and the staff. There, there are no bad stations. Yeah. You had amazing. a huge number of entries at this year, yep. didn't you? And, um, I, I can't remember meeting a bad member of staff. Everyone's out there doing their best. The stations look good. And okay, we may need a bit more investment, but what a change from the railway I joined. Yeah, absolutely. I, I just struggled to take you to a good station in 1965. <laughs> It's all good. It all bodes well. So all the way through this conversation, Chris, you've been dropping in nuggets, golden nuggets in terms of leadership advice. And, and this is, as I've said, you know, this is something that you are absolutely best known for. If, if leaders in rail are mentioned, your name is top of the list. What's important to you? Um, and, and I may be asking you to repeat yourself here a bit, but in terms of leadership, what's your advice for the people who are working in industry now? What would be your advice in terms of leadership? It, it, it's about 
it's staying, keeping management, staff, and customers close together. And, uh, and that means uh, moving around between them the whole time. Standing on Houston Concourse, you're seeing the product, you're talking to the customers, you're talking to the staff. And if, if you can find out what uh, it needs doing in all those three areas and make it happen, uh, the world's your oyster. Yeah. But somehow bureaucracy has got in the way. So we, we've got to cut through all of these processes. The, the pendulum swung too far. And we, we can't go back to anarchy. But uh, if I was looking for a motto, it would be just do it. Fantastic. We lost the art of saying to someone just do it. Yeah. We, we uh, uh, analyze things to death mm. when it's often blindingly obvious that it's a small amount of money and we could just do it. Just do it. And so, is that the quote you would like to leave us with? I always ask my guests to yes. share yes. a quote that they'd, that they'd kind of like to end the conversation on. And um, and that one sounds like a good you, one to me. And you, you would add the word responsibly, of course, but just do it responsibly. If, 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 if it uh, seems the right thing, if everyone agrees it's right, if, it's, if there's no great obstacle, just do it. Brilliant. Chris, I could sit here and talk to you all afternoon quite honestly I have thoroughly enjoyed this conversation I feel like I've had a a lesson in railway history in the last hour um, there's so much that you're saying to me that I can recognize as things that we need to be remembering that have worked in the past and, and we need to take them forward into the future and I am hugely grateful to you for joining me on the intuitive insights podcast I can't thank you enough I've loved it too, and good luck to Great British Railways. <laughs> Thank you very much. With my thanks to Chris Green for joining me for the final episode of this series of Intuitive Insights podcast. I've had some amazing guests over the last few months. We're taking a break over the summer, and we will be back in September with some more Intuitive Insights. Please do come and join us.